as of Krishna as the infinite consciousness. So, you know, if those of you who are reading through this and wondering <laughs> why is Krishna not coming to me, so we thought we should sing the song that will perhaps coax Krishna a little bit <laughs> to come a little bit closer to us. So these are the words, oh my Krishna, come to me.
I can only imagine what would happen if we sing this chant for hours over and over again and again and again. Oh, my Krishna, come to me. Come to me. The spiritual practices help us to sing to God, to pray to him, to invoke his presence. With this concentrated determination, to come to us. And Krishna looks at our heart and only if our love is pure, our intentions are sincere, and our yearning is deep enough, then he cannot resist. But appear to us in the form we love him the most. Let's take a moment to energetically draw his presence throughout this class. in our minds, in our hearts. stanza 47 of chapter 11 which is the divine vision and the key points of this chapter thus far of course are Arjuna's vision of cosmic consciousness his experience of cosmic consciousness his asking of that experience what is your will what is your purpose and Krishna's response being make war for me act for me fight for me be for me live for me and me alone and that's really my purpose that is my will for you that you be my instrument in all that you do and then in that experience of course Arjuna also realizes that all experiences of his life all the people in his life have always just been Krishna and then when he comes out of that experience he has this sudden almost emotional outburst oh my goodness I forgive me for having ever treated you you know, inappropriately as my father, as my friend, as my brother, as, you know, whoever, the stranger on the train, <laughs> you know, whoever it was, it was just always Krishna all around me all this while. And it took me to have that inner experience to realize that I have never been away from you. 
that never not been experiencing you, have just never been aware of your presence. And finally, Arjuna also has this moment where that vision's too much for him. Um, we talked about how this inner experience of samadhi or even of any expanded state of awareness uh, depends largely on our ability both physically and mentally to be able to handle that experience. As Yogananda said, a cup cannot hold the entire ocean. So we're even just physically and mentally unable to actually hold God's experience. Um, if you receive that much power, your body could just you know, disintegrate. The nervous system couldn't handle so much electric power essentially flowing through it. So after a while, Arjuna is kind of feeling the strain of this experience and he says, you know, Lord, I think, I think you better come back to that form that I'm more comfortable with and also a form that I can relate to more easily as, as wonderful as, as this has been. Please return to me in the form of Krishna. And then Krishna says, this is where we find ourselves. The blessed Lord said, by my grace, exercising my yoga power, I have revealed to you as to none other, this supreme form of mine, radiant and infinite. We talked about last time, there are two things. One, of course, this is a very unique experience to be had, but it's also a very individual experience. As we said, God will always come very uniquely to each of us, even if Narayani and I have, you know, when we have an experience of cosmic consciousness. <laughs> I'm sure we'll describe it differently. We'll have it differently and, you know, different aspects of, in, you know, the very word infinite means it's actually infinite. You know? So it's like there, I was reading somewhere, even in a deck of cards, there are the ways to shuffle 52 cards. The number of permutations and combinations is more than there are stars in the universe. Billions. So that's just 52 cards. <laughs> Imagine God, <laughs> infinite, 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 and though can be expressed in infinite permutations and common. Um, let's just say it's a lot. So every time he comes to us, we'll be new. We'll be, ah, oh, I never realized this aspect also existed. Oh, I didn't even realize this reality existed. So every experience is going to be new. So Arjuna's experience is like, no one's ever had this, because this is for you. This was yours specifically. But then he also goes to further establish no mortal man, save thee alone, great hero of the Kuru dynasty, has looked upon my universal form, not by sacrifices, not by gifts and charity, nor by noble works, nor by pious study of the Vedas, can that vision be attained. Interesting, he says, no mortal man. Now, of course, uh, Krishna is also saying that this is a very unique experience that Arjuna has had. Yogananda said, in that life as Arjuna, Arjuna attained self-realization and became a master himself. But until that time, usually this experience of cosmic consciousness of this scale tends to come when the aspirant, the spiritual aspirant, has actually completely transmuted all identity and therefore lives in an immortal reality. For Arjuna, this was indeed a you can almost say a special dispensation. And that's why Arjuna couldn't handle it for too long, because in fact, he was still mortal. He still hadn't completely merged his awareness into Krishna, even though he got to experience what that merged awareness would be like. 
but then he had to return back. And this is the difference Yogananda said between what's called Savikalpa Samadhi and Nirvikalpa Samadhi. And Savikalpa, in your meditations, you can have that experience, but then the moment you step out of your meditation, you return back to uh, not like your complete egoic identity, a much more expanded state, but still to an ego identity. And he says you have to go into Savikalpa many times over and over again until you become firmly established in that reality. And then it doesn't matter whether you're meditating, whether you're eating, whether you're going for a walk, whether you're doing whatever it is, that experience remains just untouched. And that's the experience of the self-realized masters, of the avatars especially, who come again and again. They're just, that's where they live. They're always just, just as much present here as they are in the farthest galaxies, which in itself is such a bewildering concept. <laughs> Be not fearful nor bewildered. <laughs> Krishna immediately saying, oh, don't get too bewildered. <laughs> By this vision of the wholly impersonal aspect of my being. I love those word, words. Wholly impersonal aspect. Take comfort and be glad at heart. And behold me in this, my humanly speaking, reassuring aspect. So, of course, once he's come back, he's like, you know. So, it's an interesting thing, the words wholly impersonal aspect. When you have that experience of God, you really just realize that everything exists in him. Good, bad, ugly, horrible. I mean, it's just, it's just so completely impersonal. There's no ripple of, oh, I prefer this over this, or this seems much better than that. It's just in its entirety is divine. And it's not an experience... Again, that's easy for the mind to grasp because we live in relativities. We're so used to kind of saying this versus this, this and this. Whereas in that wholly impersonal aspect, there's just, there's no sense whatsoever of any separation, any difference, any distinction between any, entirely any aspect of creation, which again takes time to really tune into. It's much easier, much better and Krishna will continue on to first start with a much more personal relationship with God. Because that impersonal relationship, um, it's more than our mind is able to handle. Because when you're in that state, it can go both ways. It's like, uh, you know, what do I do when I come back now? Should I do good acts? Should I not do good acts? Is good good? Is bad good? You know, and you just don't quite know the direction of your life anymore because it's all just infinitely an expression of God. So sometimes that itself, and a lot of people tune into that, especially the jnana yogis, and then oftentimes they become really indifferent, and they become a little bitter, they become a little cynical. And that's a very, you know, real risk on the spiritual path, especially if you follow just this really mentally heavy, you know, everything is God and you know, nothing matters types. Uh, and then you just go into this place where you lose the heart vibration. In fact, the next chapter is quite very much uh, talking about Bhakti Yoga versus Jnana Yoga. And then we come again, Sanjaya kind of enters into the picture again, just again and again to remind us, especially in this chapter, we've got Sanjaya and he came thrice, three times. Um, before, in the beginning of the Gita, you see Sanjaya's present you know, he speaks once or twice, but then practically for the entire, you know, Gita from the beginning till now, 
you, you're not reminded of the fact that, oh, wait a minute, this conversation's actually happening between Sanjaya and Dhritarashtra. It's not even happening between Krishna and Arjuna. Sanjaya is telling Dhritarashtra that Krishna and Arjuna are having this conversation, which as Yogananda said, is just a reminder that this is an inward reality because that's what Sanjaya represents, his ability to receive inwardly, his introspective, the inner mind is perceiving and receiving this experience and then kind of sharing this experience with the mind. So it's a, it's a multi-layered reality. The experience is being had, but then the experience is being shared to the mind so that the mind can process the experience and make sense of the experience for our benefit. Arjuna says, oh, sorry, first Sanjaya. Sanjaya said, having thus addressed Krish Arjuna, Vasudev or Krishna appeared once again to his disciple comfortingly in his own human form. Now this is the second time Sanjaya refers to Arjuna as Krishna's disciple. And again, this is a very key moment in the Gita because essentially here the concept of the Guru is really being affirmed. Because for us, and this is what Krishna says just before, take comfort, be glad at heart and behold me in this, my humanly speaking, reassuring aspect. Here I am again as your Guru. And that is what the Guru is for us. The Guru is that personal representative of the infinite consciousness, that consciousness which neither of us yet are able to even comprehend, let alone allow that experience to truly run through us. And so until that time, we take heart and we tune into the Guru and we create the relationship of the Guru and disciple, which is the relationship now that Arjuna and Krishna are finally kind of come to. Up till this point, it was friend and you're, you know, you're my friend, you're my relative, you, you are to help, I know you can really help us. Arjuna knows there's something really special about Krishna, everybody recognizes. And what this relationship has been building until this final moment, whereas Sanjaya kind of defines it. And he says, finally, the disciple is comforted by the human form. And that's why it's very important how we relate to the Guru. And we don't get confused. There's, or as it is a lot of confusion around the concept of the Guru, but it's important we don't get confused and think of the Guru as some you know, personality, some form, one limited lifetime that, you know, this is Yogananda and this is who he's been and that's how it's going to be and in some other life now I need to find somebody else. But that that one unbroken infinite consciousness just continues, you know, to express itself. And that Yogananda represents that expression, that window through which when I gaze into the infinite, I won't be as afraid because then I'm not standing on the abyss of infinity, unable to comprehend what lies before me. So Yogananda becomes this really nice, comforting little window through which I can peer and say, ah, infinity seems not so bad, but because I'm in the comfort, you know, behind this wall, and I'm looking at it through Yogananda, and I'm approaching it through Yogananda, that makes the whole experience much more manageable. Until, of course, our being is able to, and that's what the Guru's role is, you know, don't stop here, don't stop at the window. You know, all right, time to get out at some point. But until that moment, at least you can enjoy the view. Arjuna said, O granter of all boons, Krishna, viewing you once again in the human form, the human form I love, 
my mind is pacified and I feel I am once more myself. I love the honesty here. <laughs> it's just like, whew. you know, he's not like, oh, that experience was amazing. No, he was more like, thank God, here you are. <laughs> okay. This is the form. I know I can touch you. I can feel you. I can relate to you. Chalo, let's just, let's stay here for a while. It's just really, really honest of Arjuna to be able to say that. The blessed Lord said, Verily difficult it is to behold, as you have done, the vision of the divine universe. Even the gods yearn to see it. So here Krishna is talking about two states of difficulties. One, of course, that's difficult to actually attain that state, which we all know <laughs> that difficulty. But he's also addressing the other difficulty. It's actually difficult to hold that state of awareness. And he says, even the gods yearn to see it. Even those high astral beings don't actually get an experience of cosmic consciousness because they're just part of the fabric of creation. Whereas the human being endowed with divine will gets actually the opportunity to experience that state. So, you know, isn't that just a special blessing given to us? Its revelation, however, is not attained by penances or by faithfulness to scripture or by charities or by formal worship. O scorcher of foes, Arjuna, only by single-hearted devotion achieved through deep yoga practice is it possible to behold me and to become one with me as you have done in my cosmic form. So Krishna has said this several times before. He keeps naming these things. It's not attained through penances, not attained through faithfulness to scripture, not attained through charities, nor is it attained through formal worship. So he's really, you know, constantly asking us to a certain degree, not to throw these things out, but to recognize that you can't just make this some sort of outward ritual and assume that at some point, you know, yeah, it's going to work. Yeah, it's just going to be like, oh, if I just wave enough candles before God, or if I offer him enough flowers, you know, by the end of it somehow. Kind of bribing him. <laughs> bribing him. Yeah. If I find, maybe it's the prettiest flower I haven't yet found, if I can only give him that one. But it's like, okay, th those are wonderful things, because those outward things allow us to have a relationship with God, which is, you know, a fundamental reality. But it's never through that. And what does he say? It's only through single-hearted devotion, Achieved through deep yoga practice. Single-hearted devotion. When Krishna says single-hearted devotion, he doesn't mean, you know, deep, sincere yearning. <laughs> he means single-hearted devotion. That means that nothing else in your heart but God. So that takes time. And how is that achieved? Through deep yoga practice. So there's a way to build single-hearted devotion. Krishna is not saying, oh, too bad. Oh, you don't love me already? Too bad, Chalo. You know, you lost this chance. No, you can build single-hearted devotion through deep yoga practice. So all of us who have a deep yoga practice, and by yoga, of course, we don't mean Hatha yoga, but we mean the true yogic practice of meditation, that single-hearted devotion can be developed. In fact, it must be developed if all yoga practices are about getting to the singular experience and the singular desire for God. And when Yogananda met his guru for the first time and Sri Yukteswar asked him to give him his unconditional love, and Yogananda makes some sort of little, you know, snide, little, well, what if? <laughs> and what does Sri Yukteswar says? 
your love stinks. I don't want it. <laughs> and it makes me think that it probably literally stinks to, the, to these divine beings because our love is so <laughs> putrid. No, it's just so full of hidden agendas. You know, there's no, we, we don't know pure love. I don't think we've ever known pure love. And so when Krishna is talking about single-hearted devotion, he's not talking about what you and I would pass for love or oh, I really love Krishna and I just really love God and you know, none of that. He really means single-hearted devotion. Nothing else exists, not even an iota of a hidden agenda, just nothing but Krishna. And that can be achieved, which is, which is the reassuring part. Or I know I have to get to single-hearted devotion, but I also know that I have to build my way up to that. And it's not built by, you know, taking one desire after the other and try to purge it from your system. But it's to build more and more an inner established experience of God. Because when that starts to come, everything else goes. That's what Yogananda said. When ecstasy comes, everything goes. And so if you can seek ecstasy, if you can seek that deep inner experience of God through bliss, then it just doesn't matter. He who serves me alone, who makes me his only goal, who lovingly surrenders every thought of I to me, who releases all attachment to aught else, and who beholding me in all, bears no ill will toward anyone. He, O Arjuna, enters my vast being. Now, when I was reading this list, all of them were a little like tough, you know, a little tough. He who serves me alone. Well, that's, you know, how many, how many of us, uh, even Narayani and I, who have a life that is at least supposed to serve God alone, even we, you know, our agendas slip in and other thoughts come in and other, whatever, you know, desires slip into the whole process. You, you hope that you're doing this for God and Guru alone, but... Well, here we are, you know, ego is smart and subtle and will find its own way to drop other little things like say, You know, so, all right, we can, we can manage some of that. A lot of people may not be able to manage that even. He who serves me alone, nothing else, you're only serving me, that's one. He who makes me his only goal. Now again, yeah, we can say that's true, but it's not because we're trying to fulfill many goals at the same time. So fine, we can start working towards he who makes me his only goal. He who lovingly surrenders every thought of I to me. almost. He who releases all attachment to aught else. Sometimes we were better at it than at other times. But I like this last one. And he who beholding me in all, bears no ill will towards others. This I feel is actually doable. No, it's like, it's one of those, like, it's uh, practical, this is like, I can actually start working towards achieving this. And in this chapter, even though the chapter is primarily about this cosmic vision and experience, Arjuna specifically kind of comes at it when he comes out of the experience, he really feels in that moment this like complete like, oh my goodness, I can't believe you've always been around me and everyone and everything and I have not, I'm not treated you the way I could have. Knowing that Krishna is before me, 
you know, and I have not treated him the way he has. I mean, that hurt Arjuna really bad. I mean, that was a real experience. He came out of this experience hurt and worried that he had offended God the way that he treats his fellow man. And again, when Krishna is ending, he, that's the last line he wants us to treat. The final line of this chapter, this is the last stanza, last, chap, last stanza, last line, kind of like the closing, which thought you're going to take when this chapter ends, is this, beholding me in all, he bears no ill will towards others. And I say, this can be done. This we can work on. Because everything else is a little vague, who serve me alone, you know, we can, we can pretend with the other things that we're doing this, even though, you know, if we were honest like Arjuna, we'd realize we aren't fully. But with this, you can't pretend too much. This ill will is either there or it's not there. You know, issues with people are either there or not. The judgment is either there or not. The criticism is either there or not there. You can't pretend too much with this one. And then you can also realize because the experience of omnipresence means that you will eventually experience yourself as everyone. So you start really experiencing omnipresence by first working with people as if they are Krishna already. And this is a very important, very real practice that Krishna is recommending to us through this chapter. And this is, you know, this is something we can all really dig our hands into. And we don't have to, this is not vague enough that maybe I'm doing it, maybe I'm not doing it. Here it's like, oh, no, I'm not doing this. I need to do this. So that's a beautiful kind of verse to end this chapter with. However, our class continues, so we can make a, we can step into the 12th chapter as well. And this is the chapter called The Path of Bhakti Yoga. And Arjuna is always ever ready on our behalf to clarify things. Starts with the first verse, which is Arjuna said, Between those who worship you with steadfast devotion and those who concentrate on the absolute, which is better versed in the yoga science? So essentially, Krishna is ask, uh, Arjuna is asking, should we relate to you more personally or should we relate to you more impersonally? Should we have devotion towards you as the form, as the being, as Krishna? Or should we be looking more to the absolute, to the infinite, you know, to cosmic consciousness alone? And of these two paths, which is one is more bhakti yoga, one's more jnana yoga, of these two, which would you say is better versed in the yogic science? The blessed Lord answered, excuse me, those who with minds fixed on me are ever united to me in pure devotion and are in my eyes the best versed in yoga. Now, of course, a lot of people pick this up and say, ha, 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 bhakti yoga best. <laughs> you know, this is it, Krishna just said. No, but, you know, he clarifies, he'll continue onwards. But this is not a, uh, we'll read this, but it's important to just establish. This is not like Krishna saying, well, you know, see, the path to me is just much better than any other path. So just come to me and have a lot of love for me. Krishna is always, as we've seen this, is working from a very practical reality. What's going to really work for the devotee? What's going to be easiest for the devotee? He continues and he says, those, however, who aspire to the indestructible, the indescribable, the unmanifested, the all-pervading, the incomprehensible, the immutable, above all vibration, who have subjugated the senses, are even-minded 
and devote themselves to the well-being of all, verily, they too attain me. So he's saying you can go by whatever path, you're going to come to me. Me as in, again, not Krishna, but the same experience. You'll come to what we just experienced, what you've just experienced, Arjuna. So both parts are going to come to me, but as you can see the way he describes the second one, the indestructible, the immutable, the incomprehensible, the very term, incomprehensible, that which we can't even understand. So then he says, those who make the unmanifested their primary goal, make the path more difficult for themselves. Arduous is that path for embodied beings. It's a very important last line. Arduous is that path for embodied beings. As long as we're in this body, as long as we relate to a body, as long as we relate, and that means by relating to a body, we relate to everything else as separate. Therefore, we relate to duality as dual, to creation as dual. As long as we live in a relative reality, it's extremely hard for us to even comprehend singularity. <laughs> it's hard for us to comprehend the indestructible, the indescribable, the completely infinite, the formless, the nameless, Satchitananda, like, you know, mostly those are just words to most of us. So that's what Krishna is really clarifying this point here. It's not that I am saying, aha, devotion to me is way better because, you know, it's me. He's just saying, oh, well, you can go that way, but you're just going to make it that much harder for yourself because as long as we're an embodied being, we can only relate to reality as relative. And if we can relate to reality as relative, then we have to work with a, that's what the I and thou relationship with God. Because until that time, you know, we can pretend that, oh, there's only God. And that's where sometimes in the Jnana Yoga tradition, you see people just living so much in their heads. And you can tell it's not an actual experience for them. It's just they've stuffed themselves with so much information about the unmanifest and who am I and who is really asking this question. You know, they'll just go on as if. Yeah. I mean, you can see the saints who've, who embody Jnana Yoga when they say, who am I? <laughs> they're, they're really mean. Who am I when everything is infinite? Or when some random person comes around and says, who am I and what is this reality and who are you? And I mean, it's just... It's just words. And they're making it that much harder for themselves by believing that through these words, they're somehow having this wonderful experience. And Krishna is just kind of laying a cautionary kind of moment there and just saying, um, I mean, he's not saying don't go that way. You know, he's, he's too kind to tell us just, no, that's not there. You can do it, but you're just going to make it harder for yourself. It just becomes a little more difficult. Why does it become difficult? For those who venerate me only, offering to me all their actions, their minds concentrated on me by yoga practice, and their hearts' feelings uplifted to me in devotion, such devotees I rescue from the ocean of mortality. That's an interesting, when you have an actual relationship with God, which is very hard to have a relationship with vagueness. You know, 
go have a relationship with um, the nameless, formless, indestructible, incomprehensible reality called God. Go. You know, it's like, uh, hey, I don't know who I'm talking to up there. <laughs> oh, should I even be talking because you're, you're so incomprehensible? I shouldn't even be talking. Uh, okay. You know, it's like, what do I do? How do I start this relationship? So what Krishna is saying here is, as long when you have a focal point, in this particular case, he's saying it's me. You can do stuff with me. You can build a relationship with me. And the relationship results in what? Results in grace. The impersonal, absolute reality of God doesn't have grace as part of its truth because there's no grace to give. It's all just God. The divine personal relationship with God, because it's personal, grace is a big part of that relationship. And so Krishna says, if you relate to me, then I can rest the absolute, then you have to merge into that absolute on your own. <laughs> that's the difference here. And that's a very, very, very important difference. No wonder he's saying, it's a little harder if you go this direction. Because if you go the other, if you go through devotion to me, but then, then I can help. I can participate because that's what relationships are. Two people become involved. But if it's a monologue, oh thou indescribable, uh, you know, whatever, then you're just talking to the air, <laughs> to air. You know, you're just making stuff up in your own minds because you don't even know who you're relating to. So it's important, Krishna is of course not saying that there is no absolute reality. I mean, the entire yogic science is there is that absolute reality and our entire, the entire point of us is that we're going to merge into that. But Krishna says, if you have a focal point first, and this is where the guru comes in again and again, this is the teaching of the Gita. I am your guru, O Arjuna my disciple. And that's the relationship I want you to build. If you come to me, not only can I lift you out, but then I can kind of offer you up to the absolute. But if you cut me out, you go directly to the absolute, well, good luck. There you go. Try it. And that's why it's so important. Everybody's like, oh, why is a guru really needed? And we're already our own master. And, you know, we're just like, well, it's all true, but, you know, Good luck figuring out which, which part of your consciousness is already united with God. You know, good luck segregating ego desires from you know, true intuitive perceptions. Good luck building a relationship with something that you don't even know exists. And so that's an important part of the Bhakti Yoga relationship. The guru and disciple, they build on love. And that love is all purifying. And that love helps lift the energy up. Otherwise, it's too mental, it's too vague, it's too intellectual, you don't know where you're going with it. And that's what Krishna, at least in this chapter, in previous chapters, he's talked a lot about the importance of really tuning into him in his unmanifest state as well. So he's constantly balancing everything out. He'll say one thing here, then he'll kind of say, but also you can do it this way and you can, and he's just trying to help us see that coming to God isn't just a one-way street. There's so many ways to approach him. 
but when it comes to certain principles that can be used on the journey to approach God, love and devotion become very, very, very important. Even if you're a jnana yogi, at some point or the other, you're going to have to build this intense love, even for the absolute. But that's just, it's just a little harder to love an abstraction. It's hard to love friendship, but you can love a friend. It's hard to love, you know, motherhood, but you can love a mother. And once you've loved the mother entirely, then you can love all of motherhood. But until you've actually built a relationship with your mother, you know, motherhood is just this vague abstraction of your own making. And that's what happens on the path sometimes when you refuse to connect more personally. And especially in this particular form, I'm not talking about Krishna, Shiva as gods. You know, I'm talking about something a little more real, a little more present, a little more yours. And that's the guru. And Krishna can be your guru. Shiva can be your guru. But then you have to build that relationship, which is a guru-disciple relationship, which is, I will follow you. I will do that which you say, not just I will worship you. Because we don't just sit here and worship Yogananda. You know, we try to do what Yogananda has asked of us, which is a vast, which is the big difference between, you know, making somebody a god and realizing somebody is a self-realized master. Because when he's a, you can keep him as a self-realized master, then you can just say, oh, and he wants me to do something about it. When you make somebody a god alone, then it's just like, well, then you just sit back and just hope at some point or the other grace will descend on you, which it does, as Krishna says, but only if, if you venerate me only, offer to me all your actions, your minds completely concentrated on me by yoga practice, and your heart's feelings uplifted to me in devotion, then, I can draw you out of the ocean of mortality. So there are some, you know, there's, there's a science behind grace and the science is your ability to completely absorb yourself in Krishna's consciousness. But at least there's a, oh, come back to that word, right, window. There's a particular goal that's very clear that's set before you. And clarity is a very important thing on the spiritual path. Whenever vagueness sets in, you know, you start confusion, contradictions, and you know, like indecision on what's my next step, just starts to naturally come. That's when a lot of questions come, when your path is very vague to you, or when your path's very clear, when the goal is so clear. It's just very hard to get vague. When you just, oh, there's my guru. Is it, I have to walk towards him. I mean, where's vagueness? I don't have to, there's nothing else to do but walk towards my guru. But when you don't know what that is and who and what and where, and then it's like, oh, should I surrender? Should I put out willpower? You know, all those questions come when you don't know where you're going. When you know where you're going, you know at each step there's an appropriate response and I just keep making that appropriate response until I get to my guru. So, you know, on that particular note, let's just end the philosophical part and see if Narayani has for us anything more practical that this week kind of becomes our sadhana together. One of the things that I love about the Gita or really any scripture is that every self-realized master 
is only asking one thing about us, from us, and that is to become obsessed <laughs> with God. We need to develop an obsession for being in his presence, see him in everyone, feel him in everything, serving him in everything that we do. And, and I love the fact that everything boils down to developing an obsession, that the only thing that matters to us is to think about him, to, to just vibrate with God's consciousness within us. And until we don't develop that obsession, um, you know, we will need to learn how to do that. But coming back to a point that I really enjoyed today and made me think about not having ill thoughts mm. towards anyone else. And the thought came to me that we can say a lot about ourselves and the intentions we have towards other people through the kind of jokes that we make. Especially when we are in a conversation with three, four, five people, what are the kind of jokes that we bring in that conversation? Are we poking to somebody else who is around us? What makes us laugh? Are we laughing because someone is pointing out a fault in somebody else? Um, are we just joking because we are just only, you know, talking about somebody else's weaknesses? Are we only focusing on what that person did wrong? Hey, do you remember when you did that? Oh my God, that was so awful. And what makes us laugh, especially the words, the fillers that we use within jo those jokes. And I think it says a lot about who we are, depending on the kind of humor we have. And sometimes our humor can be very sarcastic. And I think that could be a very good thing to start paying close attention to it. Are we using our humor to uplift someone, to encourage somebody else, to perhaps redirect a conversation that it's beca is becoming a little bit heavier, or the kind of words that somebody else is using are lower or negative? I remember seeing Swami Kriyananda having this exquisite, refined, uplifted, sense of humor, that you could see there was so much purity. Every joke was so childlike, so tender, so kind, that in those moments, you could see really the divine flowing through him. And I think this is something each one of us can practice daily, to become more mindful, even the, the tone of our laughter, how is it? Is it sharp? Is it harsh? Or is it kind? Is it soft? Does it bring sweetness to wherever you are, in whatever you are exchanging or communicating with those around you? So I think that's 
something I would like to invite all of us, including myself, to be more mindful this week of your sense of humor, the kind of jokes that you use to perhaps sometimes to become yourself, you know, you know, more important. And that's a very subtle way to always the ego wanting to come out. So um, why not to start by that, by paying attention of what we use to whether uplift or just to bring the energy uh, lower. And we are responsible for that. So um, 